in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello, humans and maybe non-humans or something at this point. Um, <laughs> welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head, a podcast by two mental health professionals who um, have kooky conversations about capitalism and mental health, to put it concisely. Um, I'm Max Golding, LMFT. We've got Harriet Fraud, PhD, over here as usual. And, um, oh, and before I forget, thank you to our patrons, in particular, First Winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, Bandila Amsimanga, and Ashley. Um, Liam, shout out. Thanks for doing the editing and everything. And um, and we have David Cobb on today, which is super exciting. I actually it think is. I didn't say this to you, David, but I think I actually met you at UCSB like 10 years ago. Did you come to Santa Barbara? Am I hallucinating this or were you, when you were running green, did you go to the university? No, no I've been Barbara? to UC Santa Barbara on a number of times as a Green Party uh, uh, organizer, but right. also uh, through work with Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County and yeah. Move to Amend. So yeah. UC awesome. Santa Barbara, <laughs> it, uh, I've been there many times. Okay, well, I think I actually met you and we talked like 10 years ago. Anyway, okay, sorry, I jumped the gun, but Harriet, he, he, why don't you introduce David so everyone knows who, who he is. I would love to, because we're very to. lucky. <laughs> to have David Cobb on, the champion of cooperatives and really does something about it. He is a people's lawyer who has sued corporate polluters, lobbied elected officials, run for political office himself, and has been arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience. He's the executive director of Cooperation Humboldt and the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economic Network. So really, we're glad that you're here. And I wanted to start right away by asking you, what is Cooperation Humboldt? So our listeners can be inspired and know about it. Oh, well, Harriet, thank you for the question. And I want to actually back up to answer it because uh, your introduction, it's what I provided you and it's all true. But I also think it's important for the purposes of this conversation for me to anchor that I, yes, I'm a lawyer by training, I'm a social change agent, but really, y'all, I'm a straight up revolutionary. Now, don't get alarmed, I'm not a violent revolutionary, but I am a revolutionary because I believe that we have to completely restructure our society. Social, political, and economic institutions have to be transformed. And the reason I, I want to start there, Harriet, is because for two reasons. One, because it's true. I am a revolutionary. I think we have to restructure society. But the second reason is because I'm trying to normalize this conversation. I'm trying to inspire people who know that it's true and they, and they know in their head and in their heart and in their bodies that the current system is fundamentally racist, fundamentally sexist, fundamentally class oppressive. Um, but our system, uh, media, politics, every way we're told we shouldn't say that out loud, that it makes us sound crazy, that, that, that others will not respect us. Well, I disagree. I think we have to actually inspire people uh, uh, to, to, to act uh, based on our analysis and our truth. So with that saying, what is Cooperation Humboldt? Cooperation Humboldt is a local community-based organization that believes that we can meet all our needs to not just survive, but to thrive. We can live rich and meaningful lives without exploiting or oppressing anyone, without allowing anyone to exploit or oppress us, and it can be done in a truly regenerative, ecologically sustainable way. So Cooperation Humboldt is an experiment in radical, little-d, democratic uh, processes to meet our material, tangible, and spiritual needs. Well, that is inspiring. And, wow. you know, after hearing Jane Fonda's wonderful address, how activism is an antidote to despair, I wonder what what are the psychological effects of organizing cooperation, Humboldt? Well, you know, I'm so, a brilliant question, uh, Harriet. And what I would say is this. You know, uh, I realize that in a very real way, I am provoked. Like, first, I want a big picture. I do believe that there is some truth to this idea that at our core, we're all motivated 
by either love or fear, right? Like that's, there's something to that. Uh, And I also want to acknowledge that I am motivated also by true anger uh, at the injustice of this racist, sexist, class oppressive, and ecologically destructive society in which I live. By the way, I think that uh, it is not my, like my birthright is to live differently, but the system has, I've been born into an incredibly traumatic system. So I'm, I'm, I have to admit that I'm provoked a lot by anger, but I also realize this, that if you just stay in a place of anger, that that is incredibly damaging. It's, it's mm. damaging to your physical body. It's damaging to uh, your emotional health. Uh, it's damaging to your spiritual well-being. In every way, anger alone is a toxic phenomenon. But if you, there's something, there's a difference between righteous anger and just regular old anger. Because if you allow righteous anger at injustice to provoke you to action, there is something almost a a spiritual, emotional alchemy that takes place. It literally becomes joyful. Even if you're not winning, even if if you feel like you're not actually being as successful as you want to be by engaging in a self-actualizing way to live in the world that you know that you deserve, uh, it becomes an incredibly uplifting, powerful, joyful experience, even if uh, you're not, quote, winning. Yeah, well, I think um, partly if mental health is connection and about connection to other human beings, you are connecting around hope, around belief, around promise, and you get the energy of everyone else through that. You know, as Johan Hari's book about connection really states it or shows it, mental health is about feeling connected and not isolated. And so we overcome the isolation of capitalism, sitting in our own little house, watching our own little TV, doing everything alone, because we understand we need each other and we want each other. That's a huge mental health boon, I think. Oh, it is. And and I'll also just acknowledge, you know, uh, look, I have uh, almost 20 years now as a recovering uh, alcoholic. Uh, and I, I'm guessing that you and Max are very familiar with Rat Park and the work of uh, Bruce Alexander. Yes. Uh, but I'll just tell you, like, w- like, when I read that, and again, I already was sober and I was already doing it. But when I read about Rat Park and what it te- teaches us about addiction, it was, it was, it was it was illuminating, right? Like it was like, yes, exactly. That's the thing. What we want is connection with others. What we want is meaningful, productive work and labor for which we will be acknowledged and appreciated. See, what we want, actually, if you really look at it in the it's it's an amazing thing. And the problem is our current political economic systems, are not allowing us to fully offer our gifts, fully offer our labor and have our labor uh, appreciated, right? Instead, our Mm -hmm. labor is treated like a commodity that's bought and paid for, like capitalism, right? Like that's the problem. People don't understand what capitalism is. And as a result, they don't understand that they are, what's happening to them is that they're having a traumatic experience uh, because of systems that are actually not serving them. That's right. Because if you think about what is capitalism, well, it's a class system, like slavery was master slave, and feudalism was serf lord, in sort of simple terms. And capitalism is employer employee, where you give your labor power, they make much more from it, or they'd never hire you. And then they give you the smallest portion they can while you work. And you are the majority, and they are enriched by your labor without sharing it. And so that it's, um, you know, a selfish, mean system. But I'm really curious as how you got from a critique of the capitalist system, a passionate critique of its inadequacies, to building the alternative in cooperation humble. What got you there? Well, Harriet... um I'll do it as quickly as I can, but I also want to answer it fully to say this, that I my earliest memory as a child, uh, one of the earliest memories is fighting with a 
my brother and a cousin over a little matchbox toy. I think it was, that's what it was. Doesn't matter what it was, but I definitely remember it was, you know, and we're like four years old maybe. And my mama comes in and by the way, I grew up in poverty, not just working class, but I'm one of the few people of my generation who knows what it's like to grow up in a house without a flush toilet. Uh, and you know, Rural poverty is different than urban poverty, but poverty sucks. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know I was poor because I was surrounded by love. Uh, but the point is, here we are, uh, four-year-olds fighting, and my mama comes in and says, what's going on? And I remember, Harriet, she didn't stay towering over us, although she obviously towered over us, because I remember I still have this visceral memory of her like crouching down, putting her hands on us and just soothing us and calming us down, right? First, like, okay, what's going on? Hey, 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 what's up? And then through the course of the conversation, we like through tears and choking it out saying, uh, you know, what was going on? She says, oh, I see. This Here's the problem. There's three of you and only one of these. So mm-hmm. that's really the problem here. Oh, but you know what? Look, and then she just sort of gathered things uh, amongst us she said, but look, I've seen you play with these other things. Look at how much there is. And uh, so, and then she says, but if you really feel like you have to play with this one thing, then, then you have to share. All you have to do is share because there's enough to go around. And damn it, Harriet, that made sense to me as a four-year-old. It makes sense to me as a 59-year-old. There's enough to go around if we just share. And my entire like uh, uh, adulthood and a, as a lawyer, as a social change agent, has been trying to create systems that allow us to share. And I've tried a number of things, electoral politics, right? I, was, I helped to form the Green Party of Texas back in uh, the 1990s, coming out of my global justice work. Uh, and by the way, Bill Clinton and, and NAFTA is what completely uh, just... Uh, turned me off uh, and away from the Democratic Party. But the point is that I've engaged in electoral politics. I've managed Ralph Nader's campaign in Texas in 2000. I was the Green Party Party of Texas nominee for attorney general in 2002, pledging to use that office to revoke the charters of corporations that routinely violate health, safety, public interest, and environmental protection laws. In 2004, I was the Green Party nominee for president. I I managed the Jill Stein Ajamu Baraka campaign in 2016. So the point is, I I have a history of engaging in electoral politics, and I still do. I still believe that there is a role to play, but I'm not an electoral fetishist because I realize Mm -hmm. we also have to build movements. So while I was doing that, I was also involved in, you know, movements for a living wage, uh, movements for environmental justice, uh, women's rights movements and reproductive justice movements, uh, uh, you know, a whole range of those. But in 2016, uh, uh, and I, by the way, I helped to form Move to Amend, a campaign to call for a constitutional amendment to abolish the illegitimate court-created idea that corporations are persons with constitutional rights, yeah. right? So all mm-hmm. to say, Harriet, this is, I have tried lots and lots of things, right? And five years ago, if you had told me that I would be like, as a community organizer focused on building cooperatives, I would have said, oh, you misunderstand. I'm a serious revolutionary. I'm glad co-ops exist, but I'm playing to transform the entire system. But here's the thing. In 20, uh, I've been knowing Kali Akuno for a long time mm-hmm. and like decades. And when I saw what he was doing and they were doing in Cooperation Jackson, I, I got ex- interested because I also know Kali as a serious revolutionary. And then when I read the Jackson Cush plan, which was to use co-op development as a tactical organizing and educating experience to meet people's needs within a context of a more revolutionary transformational approach, right? In other words, not just to elect people to do good policies, but to literally transform the political and economic relationships of a place, I got super excited. And the more I learned, the more I said, okay, I've not to, to, to do that here. And so Cooperation Humboldt was birthed in 2017. Literally, Harriet, it came out of a study group. We read uh, 
from Banks and Tanks to Cooperation and Caring from our friends at Movement Generation. We read a seminal essay from Emily Kawano called Solidary Economy, Building an Economy for People and Planet. And we read the book Jackson Rising, which was a case study on Jackson, Mississippi. And from that, we launched Cooperation Humble. Well, do you see that the cooperation movement, the cooperative movement could actually be an alternative to capitalism and how? I do, uh, if it actually understands that it is uh, a movement for transformation of capitalism, right? Because Mm -hmm. my, remember I told you if five or 10 years ago you had told me I was doing this, I would have Mm -hmm. said no. But that's because, Harriet, my experience up to that time is almost everybody who was in the co-op movement, at least that I bumped up against, were literally saying, well, you know, the capitalist economy sucks, but but I'm going to create a work environment for myself and uh, my you know my coworkers so that uh, profits are shared. It's it's better for us, right? So in other words, it just became a niche reaction, right? Mm-hmm. But what is different is a this moment, this historic conjuncture that we're in, where we have an ecological co- crisis. Uh, an economic crisis of late-stage capitalism, a political crisis of rising fascism, what I'm seeing is cooperatives done as a piece of a transformational puzzle to say we need to create an entirely new economic system. So I don't think co-ops alone are the answer, but I think worker-owned cooperatives are a non-reformist reform of capitalism that can undermine the logic of capitalism undermine the dictates of capitalism and open up the space for transformation. So worker-owned cooperatives and public banking and participatory budgeting and community land trust and universal basic income uh, and locally owned energy production and distribution modules. The point is, Harriet, yes, co-ops can absolutely prefigure a, a new complete economic system, but not if it is only the individual co-op, right? So it, they have to be the building blocks, but there has to be an analytical framework that recognizes we need a new system. Yeah, and that is a challenge yeah, it's, it's, to capitalism. Sorry, Max, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like it sounds like you need a, an almost totalistic framework of understanding the system and a strategy of how to modify it outside of the individual Co-op, which is which is a similar, you know, I mean, all the, the criticisms of unions going back to like, you know, Lenin and like the, the labor aristocracy, the same thing. If you just unionize one workplace, um, you know, you're improving conditions or whatever, but you probably want to get the whole sector. You probably want to get the whole industry. You probably want to get the whole, you know, it's like the question of what unions are for. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm finding these, I'm seeing more and more debates online about this of like, are co-op socialism or not? So I, I, I'm appreciating, I was convinced by that debate for a little while thinking, well, they they certainly aren't enough if the if the system as a whole is still operating in the same way, right? Like you can have you can have co-ops under capitalism, and capitalism says, "Great job with your co-op, yeah, you know, stay over there in the corner, right? We don't really care. You're not really challenging much of anything." Um, so I'm 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 really pleased, David, and I'm I'm not surprised at all just with your background that you you're thinking from like this this very comprehensive framework of where cooperatives fit into the new solidarity economy. Well, thank you, Max, and and I really appreciate that uh, both that compliment, but also the the way you framed the comment, right? Because I really want to underscore cooperation. Humboldt is the local experiment. But remember, in the introduction, Harriet mm-hmm. shared that I have the privilege and honor of serving as the co coordinator of the entire U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, and the U.S. and, right, and Solidarity right. Economy has a very specific definition, right? Uh, just like capitalism, and I'll do it very quickly. Here's the quick definition of capitalism. One, private ownership of the means of production. Number two, that the goods and services are produced as commodities as opposed to the need and use value. Mm -hmm. Three, that they're commodities because profit maximization. Everything in the economics uh, is understood to be to maximize profit. Number four, that labor itself Uh, instead of a sacred way of understanding human endeavor, uh, is just one more commodity that's bought and paid for at a profit. And uh, fifth, everything is allocated according to the market uh, allocation. So those five characteristics 
are what make up capitalism. And for the listener who may not be steeped in capitalism, I hope you may be thinking, yeah, I think Cobb basically described it correctly, and I did. And you know what? Uh, Milton Friedman would basically agree with that definition. Mm -hmm. Look it up on any internet search engine. What I just gave you is not like a explicitly Marxist definition of capitalism. It literally is. These are the characteristics. However, I will argue when you consider the totality of the logic of capitalism and what I just described, it's literally the ideology of the cancer cell. It literally will destroy uh, because it's based on unlimited growth on a finite planet. So capitalism is going to end uh, or it will end us. But that's mm. capitalism. The solidarity economy is different because it's an economic system that articulates everyone should have their basic needs met without exploiting or oppressing anyone, and it should be done in a way that can regenerate the ecological basis itself. And the principles of the solidarity economy, number one, uh, equity across all dimensions, uh, mm. race, gender, class, sexual orientation. Two, ecological sustainability. Three, participatory decision-making processes. Uh, four, solidarity grounded in collective practices such as cooperation, mutualism, sharing, reciprocity, love. And lastly, and this is important, pluralism. A recognition that this is not dogmatic. A solidarity economy is not a fixed blueprint, but instead acknowledges that there are multiple paths to the same goal of mm -hmm. a just, ecologically sustainable world. My point is this. I am seeing in the co-op movement and the housing co-op movement, you know, uh, all there is a budding awareness that the system has to change, but we don't have to wait until that glorious day where we yeah. control the state. We can live into that new world. Well, I we you know in our questions that we thought of, we wondered how you deal with people when you're starting to have a co-op and a cooperative way of, of processing what's going on, how can you provide a space for people who um, need healing without becoming a therapy group for a disruptive often and personally troubled future or present cooperative member? It's an important and profound question, Harriet, and I'll answer it this way. Number one, at Cooperation Humboldt, we have a path to leadership, uh, and then we have an openness to participation. So if you look at our website, cooperationhumboldt.com, you'll see a what we believe. And we are very clear. We believe that Current systems are fundamentally racist, sexist, and class oppressive. We believe that capitalism as an economic system is based on exploitation and oppression and is going to destroy the planet if we don't shift to a cooperative and sustainable economic system. We believe it's actually possible to create completely new institutions that incentivize cooperation, love, compassion, and kindness. We believe in lifting up and empowering grassroots organizers working with working class people and people of color. And then the last one, Harriet, we believe we can work with you even if you don't believe these things, right? So mm -hmm. I want to be clear, we'll participate with anybody. And I can tell you in 2016, I could take you to a garden in a front yard in Eureka, California, where Cooperation Humboldt volunteers had transformed that gar that front yard, a typical lawn, into an organic garden with uh, not only vegetables, but also with native uh, flowering plants for native bird species and butterfly species, etc. right? It was a it was a beautiful thing. And signage that they had agreed to if we did this that said, access to culturally appropriate food is a human right. Food should not be merely a commodity, but should be understood uh, as a human right, and everyone should have access to it regardless of wealth or income. This, this garden is available to anyone, and we will share it with our neighbors, right? So that was the sign. And right. Harriet, Max, can you guess, this is 2016, so here's your hint. Can you guess what sign was literally right next to the Cooperation Humboldt sign? Trump. Trump for president. <laughs> yeah. 
That's right. right. And so when I say that we'll work with anybody, that's not a, a casual quip. It is a sincere statement. But Harriet, those people, unless they have an epiphany, will never be in leadership at Cooperation Humboldt because our leadership, we have a path to leadership, which includes a 12-week political education study group where we build social solidarity, where we grapple with white supremacy and what that means and how it shows up. We grapple with settler colonialism and imperialism and what that means and how that shows up. We grapple with heteropatriarchy and what that means and how it shows up. We grapple with capitalism as an economic system. So our, we have a path to leadership. In addition to that, when we are incubating worker-owned cooperatives, we spend as much time in how you make and implement decisions as we do about uh, the business practice itself. Because remember, a worker-owned cooperative business is still a business. As mm-hmm. Max astutely observed, it still has to exist within the, co-op- uh, the capitalist framework. I mean, I do uh, right. envision a world where we re- replace it, but we're not there yet. Right. So my point is, we have to recognize, and, and you may know the uh, my colleague, uh, Jerome Scott, who helped to found the um, uh, Project South as well. He comes out of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and the League of Revolutionaries for a New America. He quips, we have to make revolution with the people that capitalism hath bequeathed us, which Mm. is to say we're all damaged, right? I, you, Max, like we may have, we may have found ways to deal with that trauma uh, differently or more effectively, but this system is trauma inducing, right? And some people need more help than others. So the question is, how do we provide the space and the help without allowing their needs to circumvent and subvert the collective movement of the uh, of the organization or the business, and that means putting in rails for truly transformational justice. And frankly, recognizing it's not you know puppies and sunshine. Like there's going to be conflict, there's going to be disagreement, uh, and we need to create generative conflict. And it doesn't mean that all conflict ultimately gets resolved to your satisfaction. Right. But one wonders then on a a more um, individual basis, if you have someone who's interested in your movement, but who basically neurotically tries to co-opt the group into their, his, her, or their care, how do you deal with that? Uh, With respect, if if that is a, uh, that becomes a pattern in practice, uh, they are disinvited from the group. Sounds like a great idea because you do have to protect the group and our people who have sympathy and kindness towards other people often want to help the troubled individual, but then everyone else wants to leave because that's not what the meeting was about. Um, in so- fact, it's in that, like, like I have seen far too many progressives or, and leftists even uh, succumbing to enabling behavior yes. as opposed to empowering behavior. Yes, totally. Yeah. I, there's also, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, well, anywhere you go, you're going to have strong personalities, but I think on the left, we, we get a lot of strong personalities. And so we have a lot of clashes of personalities too. I, I mean, I've, I've seen that happen over the, I'm a, I'm a very strong personality that can be hard to deal with for some people, but I, I was going to ask you too, cause I think in this, because, um, you know, we're not like utopian idealists or something. We just say, oh, we just sit together in a circle. We make some decisions yeah. and then yay. And then the corn grows or something. It's like no one has to like, <laughs> do anything. There's nothing hard that happens. But I do think that there's something potentially refreshing about a more cooperative and solidarity model where, where like if you think of the alternative in any given workplace, um, and it depends on the workplace, but in your average workplace where, you know, labor is is considered pretty expendable and you're not really you're not really there because, you know, they'll say something, this is always a union busting phrase. They'll say, oh, we're one, one big family. Right. And mm-hmm. you're always like, well, no, like you exist here because your labor power is a commodity and the, and the boss is trying to extract money from you for profit. That's why you're here. We're not a family. Right. And so if some, somebody messes up, you get rid of them. We're all at will employees. Right. You can just, you can just get rid of the worker, you get a new one. And I think it gives in the, in the, in the sort of, um, in the zeitgeist of American workplaces and most capitalist workplaces, there is a general fear of each other that someone could snitch on me. I'm not working, you know, quickly enough. Somebody might try to climb over me to get a promotion 
into a managerial position and then they'll definitely have power over all of us that there's you know everywhere i've ever worked there's always like a sort of although there's sometimes an implicit solidarity because we kind of recognize we're all in it together there's also this sort of fear almost like a paranoia and a distrust that i think is like really rampant in most workplaces so i think in theory you'd think oh, okay in this cooperative model where it's like one worker one vote we all collaboratively make decisions you'd think that we could handle conflict better because we do see each other a little bit more as equals and not as these like commodities and stepping stones and stuff. But, but I'm curious what you think, like in your experience, is that actually true? And then maybe, you know, this maybe sounds a little intellectualized, but I mean, the social reproduction problem of capitalism is that even since we're all still in capitalism and then we go into some cooperative place and we, we grew up in capitalism, we learned all the social norms of capitalism. I would think that we'd also bring all the baggage that capitalism gave us into these newer you know, democratic workplaces. Yeah. So is there, is there less conflict because it's this better environment? Is there potentially more conflict because it's actually more confusing for everyone? Ah. They're like, well, what do you, like, what do we vote on? How do we make <laughs> decisions? How the hell does this crap work? This is a totally alien environment, right? So. Yes. It's a great question, a Max. And <laughs> I appreciate that you, you, you have a, uh, an intellectual, theoretical, conceptual framework to ask a very concrete, practical question, right? Yes. So uh, I, I'm going to answer it from lived, observed experience, and that is mm. your your instinct is correct that uh, cooperative spaces uh, tend towards more egalitarian uh, sensibilities, that there is, like, it, it's easier, right? But it doesn't solve everything, right? The process alone doesn't do it. That's why it's important that there be real clarity on, we call them aims and domains. Like uh, at Cooperation Humboldt, we operate on what is known as a sociocratic process, right? Uh, Which are independent, autonomous circles of works and teams. And each of those teams, if they know what their domain is, they know what their aim or their fundamental reason to exist, they have great autonomy, right? Uh, uh, But they don't have the ability to uh, to uh, circumvent other circles, and there are accountability mechanisms through connector links to the staff collective and to the board of directors. Again, what I'm getting at, Max, is to answer your question, you have to have clear mechanisms for how decisions are made and implemented. There's a great essay uh, uh, by a friend of mine, and the essay is titled, Hierarchy is Dead, long live hierarchy. And that's because for so many of us who recognize and came out of hierarchical structures, we say, oh, this power over is exploitive, it's oppressive, I hate it. Let's do horizontalism. But as soon as, if you do real, genuine horizontalism exclusively, you quickly will experience the tyranny of structurelessness. And you'll find, oh my God, we just spend so much time incessantly talking and talking and it's like i'm in these meetings where things are being debated i don't even care about it's just terrible Mm -hmm. so sociocracy is a way to create mechanisms that say if you uh if you have a uh agency on something it's only those things that actually you should have agency over and secondly there it doesn't have to be based on pure consensus. We have a consensus-seeking mechanism, right? But our governance structure is different. So that's a big picture answer, right? The second thing I really want to underscore is that we have clarity at Cooperation Humble that everything we do is iterative. We are failing forward. We expect to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. And that everybody is better than the mistakes that they make, myself and you included. And We don't engage in shame. We don't engage in blame. We do engage in objective observations about gaps and figuring out how to close them. And so that leads me to the last point I want to make. And there's this amazing uh, way of thinking about the virtue continuum, right? And what I'm going to say is, here are some things that I will call virtues. Integrity, love, respect, humility, diligence courage, right? I think that most folks listening to that would say those are absolutely virtues. I will say this, a deficiency of integrity is corruption, but too much of a focus on integrity leads to legalism and mechanism. Love is a virtue. The deficiency of love is selfishness, but an excess of love is enablement. 
this like in other words we need to have clarity around the fact that uh virtues uh, have to be balanced appropriately with what we're trying to do mm-hmm. and the mechanisms for sociocratic decision making of interconnected autonomous cir- uh, circles of work where people uh, have uh, agency and are empowered to make decisions uh, is really important. Creating mechanisms where people understand what their domain is, what their aim is, uh, is part of the trick. So it's partly structural, it's partly cultural. I understand that, but let's take a hypothetical case that someone is at a co-op meeting and they're going off into their own personal thing in some kind of anguished way on the collective floor. How do you handle it? You say this is an inappropriate conversation. Uh, please, uh, we're, we have to get back to our our topic of discussion. The facilitator or the group needs to lovingly discipline that person. Yeah, I agree because I think you can't sacrifice the group for the pathological individual. And I think a lot of leftists are so worried about discriminating against someone that they way overdo it. I agree. That's the point about the virtue, right? Like the excess of patience is actually enablement. Yes, it certainly is. And yet, you know, one is, I could be really criticized. I remember in Women's Liberation, this woman was just going on and on and crying And I said, well, she's crying. Let's go on with the agenda. Well, it was considered male, which at that point was a terrible curse, as well as dictatorial and unfair. But you can't run a meeting if if people um, are just emoting. Correct. And again, there is a place, like I don't need to tell mental health professionals that there is a place for emotion, right? Uh, In fact, emotion is with us at all times. But what I would say is that, there is a, how to say this? I would say that that kind of thing that you experienced is actually a function of the capitalist mindset and the hyper individuality, right? Like this idea uh, that like my emotional need, everybody else has to stop and deal with it is incredibly um, infantile, actually. Yeah, well, I think that's, a wonderful way to say it. You hope you have the group agreeing on that because I think you can't allow the mission to be sidetracked by somebody's neurosis. No, that's right. And I can tell you that at Cooperation Humble, we we, we continuously, uh, uh, about every uh, nine months to, to a year, have what we call culture setting uh, uh, spaces. So we, it's not just strategic planning, but we also make sure that we are intentionally and deliberately setting the culture. And the culture at Cooperation Humboldt uh, includes things like a commitment to non-violent communication uh, tactics, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we try to hold each other to that. We have a culture uh, of asking, wait, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? We have mm-hmm. a culture of step up, step back, or uh, as uh, some folks are teaching me now to say, move up, move back, so as not to be enable, uh, uh, ableist. But the point <laughs> is that we have a set, oh, and another uh, uh, cultural norm is children are always welcome at Cooperation Humble uh, meetings and events. So if you do collective culture setting on a continuous basis and understand that culture is not just art. And you know, uh, and music—it is literally all the things that we do together, and that you continuously uh, set that culture collectively. Then it's easier to hold everybody accountable to it, myself included. Well, what do you, what do you think about? Because like one challenge, I got really into tenant organizing over the last like year and a half, and one one really exciting prospect was this idea of okay, we find these big apartment buildings, and we find that there's these asshole slumlords, and we help people organize against them, and then we help them build community within their apartment buildings, right? And there's actually a case where in um, in Washington D.C. after the pandemic started that they that some really militant organizers got um, rent strikes within massive buildings that have actually resulted in the landlords going bankrupt, and now the the buildings are ter- being turned into housing cooperatives, basically. Um, really amazing, using that sort of fiery anger militancy to move toward arguably maybe solidarity economics. So cool, sorry for the, the tangent on this, but like what I've found though in actual tenant organizing is that most people living in apartment buildings don't actually want to talk to each other. They don't want to build community. They don't want to build a collective <laughs> culture. 
Max, I am very grateful for that as an example because I think it's important to underscore that's uh, that the, the both the power but also the weakness and deficiency of tenant organizing precisely for what you've just described. Um, and so for me, uh, uh, I, I'm not I don't do tenant organizing for that reason. Uh, and not that I wouldn't do it, but I'm more interested in working with people who have a broader vision of a true cooperative society. So housing co-ops, yes, uh, but as a part of the larger cooperative movement. Uh, and I think it's a mistake if, if, if you do any kind of organizing and don't have a broad political education uh, that, that, again, Cooperation Humboldt integrates into everything that we do. I think that's really important because it, with your with that model you just articulated, you could be capable to build enough power to challenge cap, um, capitalism. Just taking over buildings wouldn't do it. Correct. And again, taking over buildings is a tactic, Harriet, yes. and it's a tactic that we support. Just like building worker-owned cooperatives is a tactic. You know, like these are tactical mm-hmm. things that we do. But I often remind people, look, you, vision, goals, strategies, tactics. The vision is the big, huge picture. The goal is what is it that you're trying to accomplish? The strategy is the plan in order to accomplish the goal that should service the overall vision. And lastly, the tactic is the individual thing that you do. What I have observed, including in many left spaces, people mistake good tactical thinking with strategic planning, right? And taking over a building is still in and of itself just a tactic. It's an important tactic, uh, tactics are absolutely critical, uh, but if you don't have a theoretical understanding and a strategic framework in place, then you're just doing shit, right? And you may succeed, something may, wonderful may happen, but it'll be by accident, not because you had a plan. Well, I was going to say with that, with that kind of stuff, the strategy is just sort of base build to build a massive base to like get stuff done. But, um, but I was going to say the, the issue is that like, I, I've found that most people don't want to integrate into some sort of collective culture. It's, it's been like a source of like actual depression for me in the organizing I've done where, where the individualism that we've been taught seems to really dominate. I mean, so you guys are working in spaces where people are very attracted to, oh, let's build a collective solidarity economy. But I would imagine too, going back to like, you know, if you have these sort of disruptive, very individualistic people coming in, um, not meaning to be obviously like they seem like they're down with the vision, but then it's hard for them to like do collectivism. Um, I, I guess like, how do I formulate this into a question? Like, I guess just, isn't it hard? Can we just name that, that it's so hard that we've, we've been actually, we've been brainwashed into thinking of ourselves as individuals who, who, and the sort of capitalist realism around us that says, well, there isn't actually a way to do anything other than capitalism. I mean, doesn't that just give us some challenges that when you put people in together into a collective space, it's like, how do we even do this? People don't know that they need each other to sustain what they believe in. And that's a challenge. Yeah, Max, look, I, I don't like, yes, I can absolutely acknowledge the truth of what you just said. And I in no way, shape or form want to imply that I am not uh, empathetic or sympathetic to what you've described. What I'm saying is actually, as an organizer, having clarity that like, I actually don't try to convince people. Like, and yeah. honestly, I, I want to lift up my good friend, Gopal Dayani mm-hmm. uh, of Movement Generation and Seed Commons. Uh, we were on a panel together and he Mm -hmm. said just recently, and he said something very powerful. uh, And so I want to give him credit. Uh, And he said this, I have come to realize I can't teach values. And I realize that as a, as a parent, like all you can do is live values. Right. Uh, And I've really been thinking about that, Max. And so what I would say is like, I'm not trying to convince people uh, to cooperate. I'm trying to model it and invite people into it. And if somebody is like already like super hyper individualistic, like I just, that's not, that's high hanging fruit, right? Where I'm from, my, my, uh, my daddy taught me that phrase, right? Mm -hmm. It's very important. Go for the low hanging fruit, son, because there Mm -hmm. is so much ripe, delicious fruit of people who want to work with me and Cooperation Humboldt and to learn these things. And if folks need to be convinced, then they should just convince themselves. I can't convince them. Yeah, good point. That's right. You could convince them to join a rent strike. You can't convince them to want to create a cooperative. It's a very different 
mm. model. And and I do think that 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 is the, again the 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 this idea of base building just as base building is a bit of magical mm-hmm. thinking. Like, what's mm-hmm. the plan? Yes, building base is is part of. Uh, like it, it is part yeah. of a strategy, but just base building yeah. alone does not equate to what I would call a strategic plan mm-hmm. for a vision of this world I want yeah. to live in. And the people that will be the most active are the people with mm-hmm. the vision that you can articulate. Maybe they didn't even know it before, but that's articulated for mm-hmm. them. And so they can grab it and come to the cooperative nature of it. And I think a lot of Americans are getting there. Yeah. You know, the spontaneous actions, there have been 900 spontaneous work stoppages. 600 of them were around Black Lives Matter, where people through Instagram and um, Twitter and TikTok got across to each other and they didn't go to work for a particular time in order to show support for Black Lives Matter. And I think they are saying we have values and we are going to assert them. Well, but you probably couldn't convince everyone to stay out. David, I'm curious, since I know we only have a couple minutes left, or that since we are, you know, we're, we, we, we're in this weird space as therapists where we're like therapists and what the, our whole podcast is trying to target kind of mental health world, <clears throat> but also the left at large, because that's just who's probably listening and the algorithms and everything. But we, we go off on these leftist tangents that seem like they have nothing to do with mental health. I'm curious just what you think generally in your experience in, in uh, Cooperation Humboldt and related sort of solidarity, solidarity economics projects of the um, just just the if you could comment on whether or not you think it, it is a more empowering, maybe psychologically or spiritually empowering kind. If you've touched on this a little bit already, but if, if, if yes or no, if it, if it does feel that way, if you think that it, it gives people more, I guess, like psychic freedom and a sense of personal and collective liberation. And if you think that it's good for people's mental health, and if you, if you want listeners to get tapped into these kinds of projects for that, for that purpose. So the answer, the short answer is yes, yes, and yes. And and, uh, (laughs) the good news is that I can actually uh, tell you that there is good scientific data to back up what, uh, what I'm about to, to share. And that is that uh, worker-owned cooperatives objectively uh, give people a higher sense of autonomy, a higher sense of satisfaction. They are, in fact, uh, mentally, emotionally healthier and happier. Uh, and again, like uh, there's 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 data on this. You can take a look at the uh, the work out of Democracy at Work uh, Institute or Dowie, uh, and. Uh, so the the answer to the the question is yes I've experienced it uh, and there is good uh, science and data uh, that uh, that corroborates it but Max we don't need science to know that you feel better whenever you're not being exploited or oppressed right like like that that's that, that's common sense and I think you feel better when you're not alone that's what calling these hotlines are. They don't solve your problem, but you know you're not alone because someone's listening. Because someone and listening. I really want to underscore that 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 a cooperative, like a non alienated space, is actually not going to solve a bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like like it's it's uh, there are lots of other things that are going on in terms of neurodivergency. Uh, it's not like co ops uh, or even cooperative cultures are the end all be all. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this, they are healthier, right? Yes. They are they are better in every way as a way to make and distribute goods and services. Yes, and both psychological goods and services as well as physical ones. Hey, uh, I, but to, from your lips to the goddess's ears, Harriet, <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful if we had therapists actually uh, creating worker-owned cooperatives and we had, uh, uh, you know, physical, like, doctors doing it? Like, I actually think that we should cooperatize all the things. We. I think so too. Connect you actually with. I think so too. There's some. Well, there's. We had some people on in New York. Well, actually in the UK too. I actually attended a meeting last week with uh, mental health uh, professionals trying to do this right now. Um, There's a small group, mostly mostly kind of anarchist 
therapists of that orientation that are really interested in this. So maybe more on that another time. Um, but I wanted to ask you if you wanted to plug your projects just to kind of give the links. We'll put it in the show notes as well. I think you already, was it just Cooperation Jackson? Yeah. Or not, sorry, not Jackson, cooperationhumboldt.com. Is that what it was? Yes. So thank you so mm-hmm. much, Max. And I want to uh, I want to end with a deep yes. appreciation and gratitude uh, to the two of you as human beings. I know that you put this together uh, as a labor of love and a love for humanity uh, in each other. So thank you for providing this space. I was honored to be part of the conversation. Uh, I also want to uh, encourage folks uh, to check out cooperationhumble.com so you can see what it looks like to put these concepts and ideas into practice. And uh, if you are interested, you can take a look at the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, ussen.org, which is a network of practitioners across sectors, across regions, who are trying to build this post capitalist framework, right? And this is important, Harriet. These are folks who understand we have to go beyond capitalism. You can't just reform it. Mm. Uh, And then lastly, that the USN is connected to the global, uh, international, uh, global movement for a social solidarity economy. Mm. Because you know what? We can do this. Absolutely, we can. Thank you so much. And people are doing it all over the world. Thank you so much, David. I know you said you had to you have to jump off a minute before. Um, and anyone wants wants to contact us directly with you know co- uh, comments on anything that was said, just email us at it's not just in your head at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Capitalism Hits Home, if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families. And it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.